first thing was listening. That was like the number one thing in any type of negotiation, any type of pitch. I've probably been rejected, as you have, Ryan, like 99.9% of the time. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like anyone that's been not rejected 99.9% of the time, I just probably, they're boring. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome back to Design Huddle. Today, we have a guest, Matthew Matola. He's a leading voice and entrepreneur building the human cloud, the remote and independent model of work that over half of the US workforce will transition to over the next five years. He's also the author of the newly released, The Human Cloud. He sets the standard for the future of work. He also has been worked at Microsoft. He's a Forbes contributor, and he's the CEO of Venture L. We have a packed agenda to fit in. Matthew, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. I'm good. Thanks for having me, man. That uh, you know the bio that was good. That was good. Not too long. Not too short. Uh, still, I mean, you, I think you're you made very, me sound you're too good. So, eh, <laughs> eh. It's called the freelance world, right? There's just we have to hit outcomes. So, but we'll we'll get into that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. You're you're very uh, accomplished. So, let's start from the top. Um, you, you recently published a book, The Human Cloud. How would you describe what is The Human Cloud? So at the highest level possible, The Human Cloud just says, never before have we had an opportunity to create so much with so little. And so if you're sitting out there and you are a, let's go as boring as possible, you are a accountant who's been at EY for five years, you are bored out of your mind, you want to make a major impact, 20 years ago, you're screwed. There's really nothing you can do besides try to be a partner or jump to a smaller firm. Today, there's so much things you can do. You can be a freelance bookkeeper, you can be a freelance accountant, accountant expert. There's so many different opportunities. So to even extrapolate that into a more of a creative or designer space, the option used to be you jumped into a company or worked at an agency. Today, you can have your own agency. You can still work in a company, but do as much as five years ago what five people had to do. So that's the basic topic. It's just that what we're really talking about is a whole new way to make an impact. And the two tools that we focus on are the freelance economy and artificial intelligence. And when we say artificial intelligence, it's not this massive buzzword. It's sort of the tools that we're using like every single day. Like a calendar automation sounds sounds simple, but it's actually pretty impactful. So do more with less and using the freelance economy and artificial intelligence. Love that, super cool. Um, I'm curious, when did you decide to like make the jump from like a more corporate nine to five to being a freelancer, being being a, like your own boss? <laughs> I will never actually make the jump uh, and I will never be one or the other. I think is one of the, the biggest misconceptions is that you have to either be just a freelancer or just a corporate sellout or just an entrepreneur. Uh, I'll always be fluctuating in between. And so I started my career freelancing, didn't know it was called freelancing. It was simply I had to make money <laughs> and I can only work on a contract basis, right? And then like five years later, I learned that was contracting. For me, it was That's business so management. 
Yeah, I would walk down my small town street and I would go to every single business and I would say, how can I help? I can give you 15 competitors for $2,000. And one of them said yes. And then that turned into the next project and the next one. I sort of got older and I started working at Ernst & Young actually early on. Hated it, but because I had learned how to work in a contract-based way, I didn't necessarily freak out. I instead went to a grad school and said, look at all these outcomes that I've done and this is what I'm going to do when I hop out. And then I jumped into a startup. I worked at Microsoft. I run my own company now. Hell, man, I might run out of money in six months and I have to jump back into a corporate world or I'd also do freelance to bootstrap my company as well. So I think it's it's not a, a one or the other. Um, it's more of a hybrid approach where you know we are creatives. We are experts. We produce outcomes. And these outcomes can either belong in a company, in our own company, or as a freelancer. Yeah, no, I, I, I think I like well, one. It sounds like you're a little bit of a hustler, so I think there's like some people are just wired to be a little bit more entrepreneurial. So I love that. But I also like you. You wrote an article for Forbes about um, if you want to start freelancing, like basically steps to kickstart your career, and it's it's a, it's an awesome article for a lot of reasons. But you also had a stat in there that was um, I mean, look at what it was. It was like sixty percent of yeah, it's almost sixty percent of employees say they'll quit if they're forced back in the office. So we're, this is a very, we're in a very transitional phase of, of the workforce, especially in the U.S., but I think also the world um, as a result of like, you know, COVID and the, and the rise of working from home. So I guess that my question is, is um, what advice do you have for people that are looking to kind of fully jumpstart and kickstart their freelance career? Don't go headfirst right away. Start by mm -hmm. dipping your toe. And this advice is actually for both people that want to get into freelancing or running their own business, as well as clients that are hiring you. And so if you've been working at an agency for two plus years, don't just tomorrow go tell your boss to F off and quit. Instead, try to quantify the outcomes that you've done and that you can do and start to build up your first one to two clients so that you have a soft landing. Um, even if you're going to go build a business. I would recommend don't just jump immediately. Make sure you have at least six to 18 months of cash flow. Um, so that's the first thing is don't just jump head first. The second thing though is really ask yourself, why are you doing this? Because there's so many different answer, answers out there of, of, of why, and there's so many different bullshitters of people who are gonna try to sell you a course for whatever that is. And so if you wanna be a career freelancer, that's incredible. You're gonna have different metrics than someone that's doing it as a side project. And where this gets really, really tangible is that freelancing, when I look at sort of working for yourself, it's just a quicker way to create opportunities for yourself. Like there's this feedback loop, right? And when you work in a company for two years, you just get like what, two to five bullet points. Or when you work as a freelancer for yourself, you have all these outcomes that aren't sort of delayed or that aren't required to be on a corporate cycle. So also think about that. It might be that you're freelancing for the money. It might be that you want other opportunities. It might be that you just want to learn. And that's actually how I met my co-author was this guy. I could never afford to hire him full time ever. I couldn't probably even afford him if he was doing it just for the money. But he was interested in helping young entrepreneurs that are interested in technology and automation. And he started actually as a editor vetting the initial report that I wrote. And we turned into like best friends and wrote a book together. So that's the first thing. Don't jump in head first and then really evaluate why you want to do this. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, that's such good advice. I think... Um, so one of the most common questions that we tend to get is, um, you know, how do we become more efficient in our like workflows? So for, um, freelancers, you mentioned a big part of the human cloud is you know, using, 
you know, AI to improve and be, be more productive. Is there any tools, communities that like really jump out as like that you kind of either highlight in the book or personally use to make, you know, make your day more effective? So the first tool, I'm going to kind of throw it for a loop. The first tool isn't a tool. It's more of a, of a principle. And that is just the factor of standardization. I think the number one thing that creatives struggle at, especially in a freelance context, it just amplifies this, is that you're so damn creative and there's so many things you can do. But you probably need to quantify that into the two to five outcomes that you really want to do or you're that you're the, that you're the best at. And where yeah. this gets really tangible is when you're sitting across the room from a client, they don't care about the hundred things that you can do. They literally only care about the one thing that they think they need, that you're the best person in the world to do that. And so, you know, it's not a tool, but it's more of a refining and standardizing. What outcomes can you actually produce from there? Then it starts to get into, okay, how do you best align the expectations of a client to what you want to deliver? Because like I said, if you're a creative, there's so many different things you can do. You can actually design the cover for this book. You can do a website. You can do more print design like marketing collateral. But some freelancers, they've realized I'm the best in the world at presentation design. And so, you know, that's the, the first thing is really, really standardized there. And then the second thing is there's little things in your workflow that I'm not going to be the best at telling you about, but that are standard. So things like calendar automation, things like invoicing tools, things like contracting, anything that's not core to what you're best at, try to automate it. Use Calendly, use Stripe. Stripe integrations are so damn easy. Um, and even like fool around with starting to productize yourself as well. So one thing as a creative is you're really good at trading your time for money. And this is just everyone in general, right? Even if you're a lawyer, you get stuck in this trap. But what are some things that you can start to productize? So, you know, can you do a brand audit? Can you do a website audit for $2,000 or $500, whatever you feel comfortable with? So those are the sort of the ways that I'd say, and not necessarily the specific tools, but really uh, standardize it, take the friction out of the process, and then try to productize yourself. Yeah, that framework makes sense, right? Like, you know, focus on what you're good at, try to outsource, use tools to do everything that's not core to your uh, current workflow. It's like, I think that's spot on. Um, you mentioned like when you were, you know, younger and, you know, you were trying to like, you know, contracting, freelancing, kind of figuring out like how to make money basically. And you mentioned that like, you got someone to say yes. Like you basically were kind of pitching an idea or a service. Talk through how you were able to get that first yes. And I'd like to also talk about maybe all of the no's that led to that. Like almost like, what did you do to keep tweaking and changing whatever your pitch was to get that, that first yes. First thing was listening. That was like the number one thing in any type of negotiation, any type of pitch. I've probably been rejected as you have Ryan, like 99.9% .9 of the time, <laughs> Yeah. right? Like anyone that's been not rejected 99.9% .9 of the time, I just probably, they're boring. Um, but so, <laughs> you know, with freelancing projects, what it really was, was, and this is where you all probably have opportunities like this, where I had interned for this client the summer before. And when I interned for this client, I just kept asking, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? And I ended up actually creating a, uh, it was a winning a grant for $100,000 to train some of their workers. So I had earned the trust before that. So when I was going in from a freelance perspective, it wasn't a, hey, I'm this total cold person. Um, it was a, you've already seen the work I do. Now, what are some other major problems that you can't do in house that you'll give me $2,000 for? So like every time I went cold, to be honest, I got rejected. 
I personally, I've never even applied for a job cold because I just think I'll keep getting rejected. Like I couldn't have gotten to Microsoft if I did it cold. But so that was sort of uh, in a freelancing lens. And the takeaway for you when it comes to, especially with freelancing, is that there's always like a third door, right? Like there's always a non-traditional way that like me personally, I'm a working class American. So I just like, I've always, probably, Ryan, like you've always had to find that third door. And with freelancing, it's usually finding someone who's going to refer you. And this is common across whether you're raising capital, trying to get a book published, you name it. Yeah. Um, finding a referral. So that's the first thing. The second thing, though, is figuring out, like, what is inside that client's head? Like, what does success look like? Because they don't give two shits about the fact that you're a good designer. They care about the fact that they have to hit a certain number in order to get promoted or to not get fired. And so that was the first thing that I saw uh, with my first client was that they needed their 15 competitors because they were slipping, right? And they were worried yeah. about how the hell yeah. are we going to hit this revenue goal? So that would be sort of the second thing I'd say is dive deep into what your client really, really needs. And most likely it's not going to be your actual service, but your service is going to be the engine to sort of get you there. So, and that's yeah. common like throughout, right? And then the third thing is, Iterate, just iterate, 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 yep. iterate. So with this book, like, man, we got we got rejected by every single publisher, uh, and it was so defeating. It was over a year time, and every time we learned something new. But it, at first, they started to all sound the same. Like they started to all sound like, "We love you. We love your book. You're not going to sell fifteen thousand copies within a week because that's usually the milestone." So then we would ask, we'd be like, "Well, what are you using to model that?" And they would be like, "Oh, it's the secret sauce." There's no secret sauce at all. But so then we would start to iterate and experiment on like, yeah. okay, now we know that they need to hear that we're going to hit 15,000 copies. What are sort of the inputs that are going to get us there? And the unlock was that we were able to say we'll have 50 Amazon reviews within the first week because we have a highly engaged audience. And so while our competitors had 200,000 followers, we had 2,000. But our 2,000 were highly engaged based off the existing metrics we have that will turn into Amazon reviews. Amazon reviews will turn into a higher multiple per uh per reader, and then we'll have 15,000 copies. Was it right? No, 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 no. But we had listened and iterated based off of sort of what the way that they already thought. So those are the things. Start with a referral, really figure out what they need, and then just, just keep iterating. Uh, don't get defeated and go small, right? Don't just like keep making these huge leaps. Yeah, no, that, that's such good advice. I, I love the idea that you kind of... Um... Like your resilience of like being able to take rejection, I think that just builds character and like the ability to iterate after that is so, so huge. Um, I want to go a little bit back to the, the publishing the book. I think that's a really compelling story. I don't think people understand all of the behind the scenes effort that has to go into publishing a book. Um, I would assume, is this the first book you've published? Yeah, first time, first time traditional published author. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I know you've been writing for Forbes and Fortune and some other uh, companies as well as a contributor, but um, that's a huge step. So first off, congrats on doing that. I, I can't imagine Thanks, how much time and effort that took to get there. But my question is, um, if somebody's in the similar, like, I, I guess I want to hear about the process of like, how did you decide I have an idea for a book and I want to move forward with it? Where did you start? Like, when did you put pen to paper? How did you know that this was something you wanted to pursue? So it never, ever, ever, ever started as I want to write a book. It started as I'm extremely passionate about why work is so damn broken and how technology can fix it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And like that started 10 years ago when I was a college student wondering why for an internship there was only two spots when there was 2000 students and it just didn't make sense. 
And so, you know, I started just diving deep into technology and how to solve this through technology. And I'm also very dyslexic. And so the way that I read uh, creates a really, really easy book summary. So I actually started with book summaries where every book I would Mm. read, I would have a book summary. And then I learned that whenever I'd meet a leader, they probably wouldn't like me just because they didn't know me and I'm a working class American. And so I would send them over a book summary after and I'd be like, hey, such a great talk. Remember talking about this book. I happen to have this book summary. And they'd be like, oh, all right, maybe I'll give this person a shot. Then the book summaries, because I think what, what most authors get wrong is like you have to build a base, right? Like the reason we were able to talk from an authoritative lens of the human cloud was because we'd mulled over all the authorities before us. Like we were building on top of the shoulders of giants. We weren't just coming out being like, I'm a 25-year-old rebel that believes my voice has any weight because it didn't when I was 22 and 23. Um, <laughs> but so that was the first thing was we just read everything we possibly could. We got our teeth dirty. And then I started building articles for like five to 10 years uh, before it even turned into a book and opportunities started to come along the way because of those articles. And so the job I got at Microsoft, I was poached based off an article where a director had reached out saying, love your article, love the way you're looking at the future of work. Uh, We want to build a customer facing solution. Can you be the person to build that? And so sort of there was these organic, you know, activities that, that came from these articles and talks and prior things of that matter. When the book became real was I was creating actually a, it was a 150 page report on the future of work. And like kind of context, I actually wrote a book for a really high profile leader back in college and got totally screwed over in terms of I wrote the whole thing. So I learned, I taught myself how to write a book. It never saw the light of day. It's still in a Google drive and I got hosed. And that's like, so anyone that's like, you know, like it just happens on the first try, like, no, you're going to have to get your knees scraped. But, um, so when it, when the book came out or the book sort of took shape was I had all these articles and I was writing a report called ready for it, how to be ready for the future of work. And as part of that, it was important for me to have the automation and the freelance economy portion. And at the time, I had freelanced myself. I built a freelance platform, and I was early at a company called Gigster, which we do multi-million dollar software projects 100% through freelancers. So it was crucial for me to sort of have both lenses of technology and freelance economy. But I myself am not technical. I majored in finance and accounting. I'm an idiot PM. And so I had to teach myself like everything I could about AI, right? So I wrote the full report and then I got uh, Matt Coatney. I actually met him through Upwork of all places uh, because I was looking for a technical editor to make sure that all the crap that I wrote made sense. uh, And he came in from a technical lens, vetted it. And then we kind of just looked at each other and I was like, why are we going to release this? Like, why aren't we going to think bigger and think traditional publishing? And so um, sort of, you know, one thing leads to the next. I was having a meeting with a fellow author and that came from an article and he was like, you should meet our book agent. Book agent turned into, okay, this is how we can actually get in front of a publisher. Created a 60 page brief, had this 200 page report done. So we were pitching this as, hey, we have a, a finished book. We have an audience that's already signed up for it. Just like give us a give us a dollar or like just just take it right, and so we ended up spending a year then like pitching and just like trying to raise venture capital. You go into a meeting for twenty minutes, you give your pitch. They say they love you. You get an email. Hopefully, you yeah. get an email that says we're not interested. It's not big enough. So we did that for a full year, um, and we actually exhausted all the big players, the medium players, even the low players. So we, my yep. co-author and I were sitting there being like wow, like we are losers. Like everyone's rejecting us. Even the small independent book publishers are rejecting us. Yet we thought we were going to get like a HarperCollins, right? And so just so happens that HarperCollins was in Seattle uh, where I was. And my book agent texted me being like, hey, can you get to this meeting in two hours? 
And I'm like, uh, sure. And so, you know, show up, it's the, it's the editors who, who gave us the yes. They literally just had a whiteboard and they were like, all right, what's the deal? We whiteboarded everything out. And within like a week, I think it was contract signed to be honest with you. And this is a very yeah. good lesson when you're young. I think they were like, we have a little bit of budget left. They already have a finished book. And these two people are pretty ambitious. Like they've gone through all this crap. And so let's just give them the rest of <laughs> the rest of the money we have in our budget and we'll see what happens. So yeah, it was, uh, it was painful. Um, very painful. The book was fully written before it was done, before we even got a publisher. And then they did say, so we had seven months from signed contract to when the manuscript was due and yeah. we actually just nuked the original book. Like we threw it out the window and oh, we wow. said, let's start from scratch and let's focus on making it actually interesting and making sure that the stories of the people were the highlight, not the actual like academic authoritative uh, content. Yeah, that is, that's awesome. That's so cool. To, thanks for peeling back the curtain and kind of <laughs> walking through Yeah, it through sucks, that. man. Anyone that's yeah, interested, my advice is always like, are you so interested in this topic that you're going to spend 10 years doing it, even if no one gives a crap about you? About it, if yeah. yes, you're going to end up writing a book. If no, good luck. It's just really painful. <laughs> How good did it feel picking up or getting that first like hard copy and holding it in your hands? It is pretty cool. I, 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 I didn't tear up to that. I teared up when the people in the book uh, saw that they were in the endorsements or in the acknowledgements. That's when I teared up was when they were happy about it and giving it to their friends and hearing things like, I gave everyone a book for Christmas. That's when I was like, oh God, that's that's the reason we do this stuff. Yeah, I mean, anchoring on the, the human aspect and like the storytelling piece, right? Whenever you're, regardless of the topic, if you can anchor on like people and personal anecdotes, I always just find it's a more compelling book. So um, I'll have to jump over and, and scoop it up because it sounds like right up my alley of like, stuff I'd be interested in. Interested in. Um, can you talk a little bit more about like the partner, your partner and your partnership? Cause I think that's super compelling too. I'd love to hear about how you guys balance each other. Like you mentioned, he's technical. You're a little bit, it sounds like more on like the business side. Um, talk about how you guys balance and how you were able to kind of work together to, you know, eventually get this out the door. We are like the perfect match in in every way. And in terms of strengths and weaknesses, complementary, and you'd never believe it. I wouldn't have believed it 10 years ago because he's, he's double my age. Uh, he lives in Ohio where I live on a coast and he is a nerdy, deep learning, uh, former punk rocker. And I am like a, uh, idiot finance and accounting person that jumped into sales that is young and rebellious. Right. And so you would think at the outside, but we always, always, always agreed on sort of like the humanistic element of the future of work. And we also had yeah. a similar path where we were outsiders, more working class. And so we could relate on that. And so when we met, it was just a very, 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 and I think this is, is common across all freelancing relationships. We started by just working on a very, very small piece of work. And I think it was like $500 of him to just take five hours yeah. to edit it based off of how you know high value it is. And then from there, it turned into a, how can we keep working together? How can we collaborate together to the point now that you know, I've, I've hung out at his house when he's making pancakes for his kids. Uh, so every, single, right, every single company I start, he'll forever be an advisor. And if he has time, he'll potentially co-found it. But, uh, man, I got to be able to, you That's know, he's so got cool. kids. <laughs> yeah. No, so, I love that. That's so cool. It, and you guys met on Upwork, is that right? Yeah, met on Upwork. We, we, um, it's funny. We never actually met in person until uh, the book was almost done. So halfway through the book, uh, and, and so it was him and it was actually – 
the best project manager I've ever worked with in my life. And I think in the world is a woman named Sam Mason. She was an editor that I met also on Upwork, but she's the best PM I've ever worked with in my life. And so we treated the book like a software program. We had 15 plus freelancers and Sam was the PM that made it happen. So Matt and I would literally just wake up at 6 a.m., do our three hours of writing. And then every Friday we would just get grilled by her about this is what you said you'd commit. This is where we stand. This is what we have to do next. She was the best in the world, but we never met in person until halfway through the book. We had a 48 hour hackathon in Cincinnati at her house, a bunch of pizza. Uh, I mean, th th the joke too was like all age ranges, right? Like you see, like she, she could age wise, like she's a, a son that's my age as well. Um, but so yeah, it, it's, you don't need to be physical at first or, you know, be in person at yeah. first, but it was a, a final punch of, oh my God, this is, this is a blast. And I didn't tell them, I said, we're going to show up at a park and I did a mock wedding shoot. So we showed up, there's like a photographer and they're like, what's going on? I'm like, haha, you do a mock wedding shoot. Like I have no money slash our budget is so small, but we could afford this. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, that's a super inspiring story though. That people always think like you have to be in the physical location in order to like be productive and like get stuff done. But to be honest, I think you did a lot of things that are super smart. One was getting all the right people in place, right? You had three different people, all different skills that balanced each other. Um, everyone was very committed like to the goal. Like you didn't have any, there was no weak links in the chain. Everyone was kind of all fully pot committed on what you wanted to get done. And then the last is it sounds like, you know, the, everybody in the group seems like they're also very uh, like resourceful and like scrappy. Like they wanted to get it done. They were managing whatever else was going on in their personal lives, but they all kind of still came back and were able to deliver their, their parts of it, whether you were PMing or writing it, like everybody kind of came together. So that's super cool. Cause I think like finding a good team and having someone there to support like a partnership and do going into a company, writing a book, anything can really make sure that you have a soundboard, like, you know, somebody that's bounce ideas off of, but also keep you motivated. So um, I love everything about that story. I love like the hearing the, the I think I like hearing the, the failures and the missteps the most, but that's, that's so cool that you were able to, to get it done. Um, on that yeah. remote and, piece. I, yeah. Go, go, go ahead, Matt. Yeah. Just one point to you, Ryan, like in terms yeah. of from a leadership perspective, I've been hiring people since I was like 22 years old. Yeah. And if I, the traditional path is you have to really, really, really just put your, get your stripes right. And put your time yeah. in, 10 plus years, then you become a manager where you actually have budget. You can hire people in the freelance economy. That's that, that's, that doesn't exist. I would instead, I would just eat and you know, with like I would eat at the office because in Silicon Valley, they provide you lunch at dinner weekends. I just wouldn't eat. And I would take the excess money that I had, which was so little because San Francisco is so, so expensive. And I would yeah. spend that on hiring freelancers. And not only like was the impact of the, the outcome important, but it built my bench so that when I walked into Microsoft, I was, I was already a leader. I was already operating at a director level because I had these 15 plus people that I had worked with prior that were designers, developers, writers, researchers. Yeah. It was awesome. So, you know, no matter how young you are right now, you have an opportunity to be a leader, meaning to get a tribe together to really, really jam on things that you're passionate about. And it starts by just saying, let's work on this small little thing. And I have like no money, but that's okay because you're a freelancer, you have other projects. And as long as you're passionate about this, you're going to want to jam together. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. Um, let's turn the table a bit on that. So how do you hire good freelancers? How do you ensure you don't get burned? Such a good question. It's really hard. And so first thing is you have to figure out why you actually need that freelancer and what the work is. 
Second thing is you have to figure out where that freelancer is. And third thing is how to get started. So in terms of understanding what you actually need to get done, the shift is generally a uh, a mindset shift from skill to outcome. So instead of saying, hey, I need a designer, it's I need a landing page or I need a website or I need a presentation design. So that's the first step. The second step is really, really tough for leaders generally, but on the younger side, it's not as bad. That is putting the trust in the freelancer. So if you think you need a presentation design, have that freelancer tell you what the cost should be, what the time should be, what the required step should be, what technologies you should use, what design principles you should focus on. And then the third thing is generally starting as small as possible. So one thing is you're going to fail. And what the freelance economy is great at is that it reduces the actual impact of failure. So when you have a bad hire at a full-time level, good luck. Like it's going to cost what over 300 K probably in terms of your own cost. And you're stuck with that person forever where if it's a freelancer, there's no such thing really as a bad hire because good freelancers, they're also vetting you. And so you work together for one to two weeks. You see if it's a fit, if it works, you then work together for six weeks or eight weeks. And if it's not a good fit, most likely both parties will say, this is great. Thanks for making sure you're not just stringing me along. So first thing is really change your mindset to being more of a skill or job requirement to more of an outcome of what outcomes do you need. Second thing is really put the trust in the freelancer, understand that they are the expert. The reason they freelance is because they're the best in the world at it and they don't need a job. And that's one huge thing as a leader that you have to understand. These are not people that can't get a job. They're too good to have a job so they can be able to work with you at a contract basis. And then third thing is start small. I usually like to say risk-free too. So if you are, you know, first time hiring a freelancer, don't trust them to build something that if it doesn't work, your boss is going to fire you. Like start really, really small on something. Maybe it's market research. Maybe it's one slide design. Maybe it's a diagram you've been having in your head. Um, But so those are generally the three things. That's yeah. I mean, that, uh, the, it's so profound too to like start small before you get like the scope of a huge project. You know what I mean? It's kind of like test the waters a little bit. I also think it's like, if you've never worked with freelancers before, I just like the idea of starting slow too. So you can kind of like yeah. get the sense, but the, the, the best part of that answer was the fact that how you describe freelancers, right? Where like they don't need, they're not going to struggle to get a job. They're the best at what they do. They want to be their own boss. And because they're so good at their job, they have the ability to have like, they can be as picky as they want. They can set the price in a lot of ways. So um, I think that's the other thing is the mindset that like freelancers can give you an insane amount of value. So I think like a lot of freelancers and creative professionals that I've talked to, they feel like they get undercut a lot. Like they set a price for like something like logo design. They're like, this is my price versus doing it really well, they want them, you know, they want to take price cuts or they want it like they like the saying, like, this is our budget. So there's also I'm flipping back to the freelancer perspective is the ability to say no, like if, if the job isn't meeting your requirements, if the price isn't right, you have to have the like, the, there's another job around the corner. So sometimes it's hard saying no to work if it's not the right fit. Um, I just wanted to, did you have any, did you have any experience with that? Is that something that you've personally gone through? Or do you have advice for people that are in that situation? So the situation of being undercut, undersold, sort of surprised when you get the actual um, coming back from the client, the problem is generally that you're, you're positioning yourself as a resource and not a solution. And to put it in a different way, you're saying that you'll do one thing 
versus being the go-to resource, being the, the go-to partner. And so to get really, really tangible, what I mean by that is, let's say we have a coffee brand and they wanna go global. Are you gonna position yourself as the trusted resource to help them have the best design from a global perspective, or are you gonna position yourself as doing an animation video? If you're gonna position yourself as doing just one animation video, you might get undersold because they're looking at you in a very transactional way. But if you're selling yourself as the best possible person to drive their design, then they're gonna look at you in a holistic manner and realize that the animation video is just one small step in a larger pool. And so even if that one project might be smaller, you might have a retainer coming up or you might have a, a longer yep. project. So that's generally what I see, is that it's more of a, how are you positioning yourself? Simply as a another IC, or are you positioning yourself as the best strategic resource? Which usually actually comes down to KPIs. So it's positioning yourself as a leader that's gonna drive awareness, or drive engagement, or drive NPS, or some sort of metric that you, you know you can deliver, and focusing on that, instead of fighting over, I can do a logo for $2,000, and they say, what about yeah. 1500? Then you're, it's just that that's where the freelance economy does become a race to the bottom because now you're just competing over a transactional unit instead of showing that you're going to actually drive $2 million of pipeline value. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> could have said it better myself. Um, before I uh, let you go, I want to, I want to know about like misconceptions of like remote work. Like what are things that people have these preconceived notions of? that like you think are just like not necessarily true? Good question. The first thing is that remote work is not sitting on your couch. Remote work is still working your ass off in a different way that is better suited in some ways. And so for people like myself, I'm a little more introverted. And so when I have conversations, I like them to be very, very intentional. And when I worked in an office, it was insane to me how every 15 minutes someone would come into your office and say a joke and then it would throw you off your flow and you'd end up going home and you'd get nothing done because you didn't have your three hours of committed time. Yeah. So the first sort of myth is that remote work means less work. It actually usually means more work. It's just a different type of work, which for some people, they like to be more intentional with their time, a little more introverted. The second misconception though, which is probably the biggest one, is that you can't form relationships. This one I just fervently disbelieve in um, and I will say that because I had to out of necessity. Like I couldn't go find Matt Coatney. I couldn't hire Matt Coatney if we were in if we were in Silicon Valley. I wouldn't be able to find him if my only pipeline was the, the the company that I worked for or the events that I went to. I literally had to by by necessity find these people. And because of that, I have freelancers in Croatia, Serbia, uh, UK, Belgium, uh, Amsterdam, the U.S. To be honest with you, the U.S. freelancers are usually the worst. Like, sorry, U.S., I'm American, so I can say it. We're way too entitled. And, like, the, the <laughs> Europeans are eating our lunch. Um, but Gosh. so the second thing, though, is that relationships can't be built in a remote environment. That is so fervently false. But what is required in a remote, a remote relationship is actually committing to the outcomes that you'll say you'll deliver. So in person, I feel like relationships are easier to form sort of loose relationships, but it's harder to form deep ones because let's say we're collaborating together. If I see you every day, I can't get that mad at you when you don't deliver your thing and give me an excuse tomorrow morning. In a remote environment, there's no excuse. Like you should have communicated it before and we and you're, you're more intentional about the, uh, the deadlines. So 
those are like the two the two myths that I say. I think a third myth would be people think there's like magic tools. There's not. I think at the end of the day, all work usually comes down to a spreadsheet or some sort of email, um, and that's okay. Like it's you don't have to turn your your infrastructure into this beautiful thing. It might literally just be emails. You might be emailing your client back and forth, and that's fine. Um, your CRM system might just be a spreadsheet. Uh, your actual project management also might just be a spreadsheet. So that's the third thing is don't worry too much about the tools. Instead, really focus on what's happening behind the tools. Yes, yes, yes. Clip it, send it out on all social media. That was the that was the sound bite <laughs> that I think everybody needs to hear. I could not could not agree more. Um, you should write out. You should write like a medium post on just like misconceptions of remote work because that's like that was the best summary I think I've heard today. Um, Let's write it together, Ryan. <laughs> and and one thing I want to call out too, just because anyone that's had large company experience, this isn't like a remote work conception. Also, one of the misconceptions about the office, which I think was so wrong, and we're now yeah. starting to feel the effects of it, is like the the Microsofts, the Amazons. Actually, Amazon doesn't really count. The Microsofts, the Facebooks. <laughs> we don't need free lunch, and we don't need you to spend all this money on our like fringe expenses. Give us flexibility and like give us the money. Like instead of paying me 10k a month and yeah. then having all this free crap, just give me 15k a month or give me 12k a month. So that's you know it's not just remote work. Also in the office, there's these massive misconceptions about what we need, and that was just crazy to me of how much free stuff they would give out. When in reality, just give me more money and give me flexibility. That's it. Yeah, I think that's the thing is that there's also a generation that devalues their time. Like obviously, uh, the most important reset most important resource so flexibility will continue to drive uh how people think about you know their next job so this was this was an amazing conversation Matt. thanks for dropping all this knowledge on me on this is like not my expertise but i love i love hearing about um you know the remote workforce freelancing um and of course your awesome book the human cloud which i'll have to give a read um asap but for all all the people listening uh, where's the best like place to find out like more about you and the best place to buy the human cloud? I guess Amazon. Amazon's great. Amazon, we don't know why it's like four dollars right now. So hurry up and go get it while it lasts. There's only like oh, fifteen great. copies left. It's a steal. Yeah, yeah. So actually, and I have to buy my own book. So when I send it to people, like I'm, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. What's your address? Like, uh, yeah, right. Give me your address and I'll send it your way. It's only four bucks right now. <laughs> so Amazon, Amazon deal. is a place. Uh, you'll find it. You'll find it in, in local bookstores as well. So I've had friends reach out, being like, "Is this your so idiot cool. face in my local bookstore?" And I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> sorry." Um, so you know, your local local bookstore will have it. If you want to find me, uh, LinkedIn. Just feel free to connect, reach out. Don't sell me crap. But if you want, if you know, if there's a, a good collaboration opportunity, always open to talk. Always open to have a, have a quick meeting, uh, and then just. Google, you can find some of the stuff. So, you know, Forbes, you'll find that. Uh, VentureL, my software company, you'll find that. But LinkedIn is probably the best place to start. Cool. Awesome. Well, I'll link everything in the show notes. Matthew, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Uh, one of my favorite conversations today. We'll have to get you back for round two when uh, Mustafa is back uh, feeling healthy. But uh, yeah, that's it for Design Huddle today. Thanks for tuning in. If you haven't done so, please uh, subscribe and jump over and check out our YouTube channel. We launched it a couple weeks ago, so we're still kind of playing around with different formats. So this episode will be up there as well as live everywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Design Huddle. Peace. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Design Huddle. The opinions expressed are solely our own and do not express the views or opinions of our employer.